All right, let's get started with our third session on core studies looking at the book of Hebrews. Um, as I said earlier, this will be five weeks. This is the third of five, which means it's right in the middle. And we're going to, our subject today will be chapter two. Chapter one, we did last week. The first four verses of chapter one, we did the first week and an introduction to the entire book. And now we're going to look at chapter two, which happens to be my favorite chapter when I'm studying it. When I move to chapter three, it'll become chapter three. (laughs) Right now it's chapter two, and chapter two is a special chapter, as we will see. Chapter one was a special chapter, but chapter two is actually extra special. Um. Now, based on the structure of Hebrews, just so you know, chapters 1 and 2 are basically the introduction to the book. At the end of chapter 2, the real book starts. So chapter 3 is going to be the start of Hebrews, the, the, the start of the main argument of Hebrews. But right now, we are just looking at the introduction. And it's a fine introduction, as we've, as we've been made aware. Before I jump in, though, I, I do want to pray and ask for God's help. So let's do that. Father, we come to you today. We thank you that you are reigning on the throne. As we've learned already in chapter 1, we just pray that you would also open our eyes and let us behold wonderful things from your word in chapter 2 today. And and that you'd build our faith as we consider Jesus and consider who he is and what he's done. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So chapters 1 and 2 are the introduction, but there's a distinct difference in the emphasis of the two chapters. If you remember, chapter 1 emphasized the divinity of the Son, his divine nature. It had all kinds of references to his godness, if you will. I just listed a few of them there as a review there in the notes. Starts out with phrases like, he created all things, something only God can do. He's the glory and the, of the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. In other words, the image of God. So Christ is fully divine. He sustains all things. It says that in those opening verses. And then it says he's also enthroned at the right hand of God. And that's what the bulk of the chapter is about. We went through that last week. The, the whole chapter is showing that it was proclaimed in the Old Testament that he was going to be at the right hand of God. And, and now he is, because he's made purification for sins. He's now seated at the right hand of God, and he reigns. He's sovereign. He's God. In fact, there are verses in chapter 1 that actually call him God and call him Lord, quoted straight from the Psalms, the Old Testament. But now we're going to get to chapter 2, and the emphasis is going to go to his other nature, his human nature. Chapter 2 is going to focus on the fact that he's a man, and he's got full human characteristics. So I've titled this section, last week I was calling it, Consider Jesus the Son Enthroned. I could have said the Son of God enthroned to emphasize the divine nature. 
This week we're going to consider Jesus the Son of Man who suffered. The big emphasis here, how is he a man? What's, what's the big human characteristic that's going to be emphasized the most? He suffered. God couldn't suffer. The divine nature can't suffer. But we who live on this earth know it's a life of suffering. Even when things are going pretty well. There's always a little element of suffering going on. Even suffering getting out of bed when you're fully healthy, let alone not. Part of being human is suffering. And this chapter will point us and help us see that Jesus, too, suffered like us. But before we get to that, there's like a little um, intervention. There's a little, uh, I should say, um, transition there's four verses that don't really talk about his humanity or his divinity. They're just a transition. And before I actually dump it, jump into those, I wanted to make one more observation that joins the two together, chapters 1 and 2. If you remember, in chapter 1, he starts out with this statement that he is much superior to the angels in verse 4. And then there's all kinds of comparisons to the angels throughout the entire chapter. And on a first read, you would think, okay, that must be the main point of chapter 1 is Jesus is better than the angels, which is true, but really the main point of chapter 1 is not so much Jesus being better than the angels, but that Jesus is enthroned as God. And yes, the angels are not. We learn in chapter 1 that He's the enthroned son. The angels are just ministering spirits. It says that twice about them in in verse 7, verse 14. But this angel theme doesn't go away in chapter 2. Turns out there's a reason, I think there's just a practical reason, that the author is using angels. He's using angels as a comparison for Jesus in several different ways. First chapter, he was saying he's much better, he's far more elevated, he's divine, and they're, they're not. But he's also, in chapter 2, he's going to make three more comparisons with the angels. And actually, chapter 2 is going to deal with those three comparisons. In fact, the, the book, the, the chapter divides into three sections. Each one is dealing with this comparison with the angels. A different comparison. Chapter 1, remember, he's superior to them got a superior name he's in a superior position but here we go now this is these are the three times that the angels are mentioned in this chapter i've got them listed here verse two and also it's also interesting that every one of these statements begin with the word for chapter one he said for to which of the angels did he ever say chapter two verse two says for since the message declared by angels proved reliable. So that first little section is going to be comparing the message of the angels to the message of Christ. Then there's going to be another four statement in verse 5. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. So he's going to make a comparison about the world being subjected not to angels, but to the Son of Man. And then finally, there's one more statement that 
shows up unexpectedly in verse 16. For surely it was not to angels, it was not angels that he helps, but he helps the seed of Abraham. And all four of those statements are meant as comparisons. So the author of Hebrews has used the angels as essentially a a literary device to help show how much greater Jesus is than angels. Because angels have a pretty elevated view in most of our minds. Angels are pretty good. Angels are spiritual. Angels are powerful. But the author is saying, you think angels are good? Consider Jesus. He's way better in these four ways that he lists. So let's get to the first four verses where Jesus speaks a better word than the angels. That's essentially what it said in verse 2. He speaks a better word than the angels did. But the first verse, well, actually, this is a, this is, the first verse is a response to chapter 1's initial verse. Remember what it said in chapter 1? The very first command, uh, not command, statement of truth. God spoke to us in Son. Remember that? That was the main subject of verses 1 through 4 in chapter 1. God spoke to us in Son. Now look at what chapter 2 says in response to that. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. God spoke to us in Son through Jesus. What's the response? We must pay much closer attention to him than to any other speech from any other source, including the angels. It's imperative. This is the first imperative, the first command of the book. We must pay much closer attention to Jesus than angels or anything else. And he says it, he couches it in a negative way. Because this, this command to pay close attention to Jesus has a warning following it. Verses 2, 3, and 4 are a warning. The first warning of Hebrews. We get the first command followed by the first warning, and actually they're coupled together. And we'll see this pattern throughout Hebrews. Hebrews is known as a book of warnings. There's going to be several more warnings coming, big time in chapters 3 and 4 and 6. This is the first one, and it sets up the, the remaining warnings that are coming. What is the warning? Well, let's read it, starting in verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's the warning. How shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation? That's, that's warning language. Like, pay close attention. If you don't, two things will happen. The first thing, in verse 1, we'll drift from it. Right? Yes. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. If we're not fixing our eyes on <coughs> Jesus and listening to what he says... We're prone to drift. We'll lose sight of where we're supposed to be moored and anchored, and we'll drift. He's actually going to use anchor imagery in chapter 6 later on. 
Jesus provides an anchor that keeps us from drifting. That's, that's coming attractions in chapter 6. But right now, the warning is listen to Jesus. If you don't, you're going to drift. That's the warning. You're going to drift. And he says it differently in verse 3. The other thing that you will experience if you don't pay close attention to Jesus and what he says If, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Well, you look back at what happened to the angels. If people didn't obey the angels back in the Old Testament when they said things, what happened to them? Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. There was a just retribution for people who disobeyed the angelic word, how much more Jesus' word? If you don't pay a close attention to what he said and you neglect it, what is out there waiting for you? A just retribution. So he's spoken in warning language. If you don't pay close attention, you've got justice, retributive justice awaiting you. And it's more certain than any retributive justice that angels declared in the Old Testament. Now, just for the point of comparison, let's think that through. He's inviting us to compare the justice that's coming if you don't pay close attention to Jesus to what happened to Old Testament saints without specifically mentioning them. I just ask a question. When yeah. it says what what angels declared, is it referring to the entirety of the Old Testament, or what is it referring to there? It could be. It could be. Especially if you subscribe to what the Jewish teachers of the time taught. They actually taught that the Old Testament was mediated by angels. That all of the Old Testament was... When Moses was receiving the word of God, he was receiving it from an angel. When Isaiah was receiving the word of God, it was an angel speaking to him. When David was writing the Psalms, it was an angel. That was the teaching. So yes, that thought is in play. It is. Now, whether that's true or not, you can debate whether it was actually an angel or the Spirit of God just moving in their hearts like he would have in the New Testament. So he's definitely, that's in mind perhaps for the original hearers. But there's actually some places that we have specific examples in the Old Testament of angels communicating and bringing the word. And does any come to mind? Anybody remember a time when angels spoke the word of God to his people? Go ahead, Angie. I can think in Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Gabriel came to Daniel. Yeah, well, that's New Testament, but angels came before Jesus became enthroned, so he spoke to them. Yes? To Lot. To Lot. This, this is the one I comes to mind the most, especially when he talks about the just retribution. Remember? He's saying, remember what happened when people disobeyed angels in the Old Testament? A just retribution came, and, and 
according to my notes, I've got it listed there. Genesis 18 and 19 has the story of angels coming to visit first Abraham and then Lot. Right? In fact, I'll go to Gen 19, Genesis 19, just to confirm that. If you look at Genesis 19, verse 1, this is their way to Lot after they've talked to Abraham. It starts out, the two angels came, the two angels, the ones who had just been talking to Abraham, are now coming to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate. And the angels come up to Lot, and they proclaim a word to him. And uh, look, you can read the story on your own. I don't have time to go through it, but you know the story. They basically said, gather everyone you know and get out of here, because tomorrow... A just retribution is coming upon Sodom. And what happened? Who obeyed this command? Lot Lot did. And he was able to convince three members of his household to go with him. And there's a couple that didn't. His sons-in-law that weren't, they weren't married yet apparently, engaged. They thought he was joking and they didn't obey and then when he does leave, actually the angels drag him out. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They drag him out. They like grab hold of him and go. That's going to, that grabbing hold of and rescue, that's going to come into play later here in chapter two, actually. Uh-huh. Grabs him out. And then the just retribution comes upon Sodom. And then one of his household members looks back, looks back and she gets judged. And the other two household members don't do too well either down the road, if you know how the story goes. But Lot got saved. <laughs> but this, that's, that's what I think is happening here when, you, when he's talking here in chapter 2 of Hebrews. He's, I think that's the one that comes to mind the best, the clearest. Yeah. It's like, okay, remember what happened when angels brought the word to Lot and Abraham? Abraham obeyed much more successfully. He said, your wife's going to have a baby, and she did a year later, and things went a lot better with them, but... Lot, he also obeyed, but everyone else who didn't got a just retribution. So that's the example saying, if that's what goes on when the word from angels comes in, mm-hmm. how much more serious is this word from Jesus? Mm-hmm. And if you don't pay attention and heed the word from Jesus, you think you're going to escape any better than Sodom? And if we know what's coming on the judgment day, I think you can put it together. I mean, there's going to be a greater judgment on the judgment day for those who aren't paying close attention than anything that happened to Lot's wife in Sodom. That was just a foretaste of what's going to happen on the judgment day. So I believe that's what the author of Hebrews is having us be afraid of this. Think of the judgment day and don't, there's fear here. You don't want that. Pay close attention to Jesus, and that won't happen. That's, that's what he's saying here in chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. And he's going to say things like that more later on. If you've read Hebrews, you know what I mean. He uses the warnings to put the fear of God in us, to just put it bluntly. All right, now a couple more statements about this. How shall we escape? It was declared. This is the message. This is the means by which the message was spoken in verses 3 and 4. This message was declared at first directly by the Lord 
by Jesus himself, called the Lord here again. And it was attested to us by those who heard, by others, gospel uh, apostolic eyewitnesses. Now, of course, I, I mentioned this earlier. This is probably why the author of Hebrews, isn't, he doesn't consider himself an apostolic eyewitness by this statement. He's basically saying it was declared to us first by the Lord and attested by those who heard. So someone else told it to us. People like Paul and Peter and John and Matthew and Mark and those, those guys. So the author of Hebrews is probably a second generation. I heard it from someone else. That's the evidence of this right here, that one statement he makes about himself. He includes him in there. And then there's one other third statement not to forget in verse 4. God bore witness to this message. It wasn't just words. There were signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit that God himself and the Holy Spirit himself confirmed the word with. So God himself is bringing a witness to this word of Jesus. It's not just Jesus. It's not just the people who heard Jesus. The Godhead has confirmed it. And we can attest to it. This is a special word. Pay close attention. All right. Now, um, one other thing I wanted to make note there at the top of page two. It's rather interesting that the first person pronouns have made a return to our text. What I mean by that is the we's and the us's, primarily the we's. Remember in chapter one, there was only one first person pronoun in the entire text. God spoke to us, verse two, and the rest of it was about Jesus. Once he gets to the response, it's all about us again. And he, he brings a bunch of we's in these four statements. In fact, there's six of them. See them? He shifts it back to us. How should we respond? We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So there's six personal pronouns. So this is your responsibility to this Jesus, is to listen, heed, obey, pay close attention to it. And then it turns out that he, he kind of gets away from the personal pronouns, except down in verses 8 and 9, he'll mention it twice more. But he kind of goes away again from these personal pronouns and kind of makes it third person again. So there's some places where he's like saying, pay close attention. And then he kind of backs away from that. And just down in 8 and 9, if you want to see what I mean... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So those are the other two first-person pronouns. And that's it in chapter 2. And there's, there's uh, some significance to that. I'll, um, actually, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that later. Why I think he goes from first to third, third to first, back and forth a few, few times. But he's basically presenting his case either about Jesus and now he's going to bring in, he's going to talk about Jesus as a man. So after verses 1 through 4, we get to 5 through 9, the next comparison with the angels. Verse 5, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. 
of which we are speaking. Interestingly, we're speaking. That's, this world to come is not subjected to angels. And what's his proof? He goes back to the Old Testament and he quotes another psalm. Verses 6, 7, and 8 are a direct quote of Psalm 8. Remember his pattern in chapter 1, he quoted six different psalms directly. He's going to quote another one here. He's going to quote another one down a little further. He's going to quote two more psalms. Right now it's Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 sounds a lot like one of the last psalms he quoted, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was quoted back in chapter 1, verse 13, when he said, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Psalm 8 says similar things with a lot more detail. Here's what Psalm 8 says according to our author here. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So those last two phrases, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet, sound a lot like Psalm 110's. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Similarities, but there's also differences. And I listed some of those similarities and differences. It's an invitation to compare the two, because there is a, there is a significant difference between the two, and we've got to wrestle with it. Let me find myself in the notes here. Where do I have? This is the top of uh, comparison, top of page three, right? Mm-hmm. Compare them. All right. Psalm one ten one. The Lord calls him Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. So in other words, Psalm one ten is emphasizing his divine nature. Psalm one eight brings in the human nature. Look at the words there. He calls him the Son of Man. What is man and the son of man that you care for him? So he's emphasizing the human nature. Instead of calling him Lord, he's calling him the son of man. So that's a difference. Now, as far as if he's man, he's been made man, he's been incarnate, he's become man incarnate. Psalm 110 only hints at it. And I'm going back to the text of Psalm 110. I'm comparing the full psalm which is fair to do, I would recommend you do that when you see these quotes in Hebrews. Because he's looking at context. He knows people will remember verse 1, but he says, if you know Psalm 110, what is Psalm 110? It's all about God reigning until you get to the last verse. The very last verse of Psalm 110. I'll just read the last few verses. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, day of judgment. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Then there's this interesting statement at the very end of Psalm 110. He will drink from the brook by the way. Why does God need to drink from a brook? Because this God who's bringing this judgment is a man. And he drinks from a brook. He's a man. He needs water. 
So there's a little hint of his, at his humanity at the end of Psalm 110. Now, but Psalm 8 has got humanity written all over it. He's the son of man. He's, he's a little lower than the angels. He's lower than the angels. Angels are spiritual and they have power and they can rule and they can pretty much do what they want under God's direction. Men are under them. Men are generally subject to them. So Psalm 8 is, is focusing almost entirely on his humanity. But they also both, together, they both talk about his enthronement. They say this, Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, divine Lord, sit at my right hand. Psalm 8 says that after he was made a little lower than the angels, he was crowned with glory and honor. And he was given a dominion over the works of God's hands and everything was put under his feet, which is actually what was spoken of last week, right? That the enthronement, after you made purification for sins, he sat down. Psalm 8 is, is confirming actually what was talked about in the first chapter. This son of man is crowned and now has everything under his feet. But here's the other difference. Psalm 110.1 speaks of a future subjugation. Remember how it said, sit at my right hand until, until, I make your enemies a footstool for your feet in the future. Psalm 8 makes it sound like it's already happened. You are crowned. Everything is in subjection under you. So it's an interesting contrast. Which is it? Well, it's both, actually. Everything is subjected under him right now. But we don't see everything subjected to him right now because there's going to be a future subjugation of the world to come where he's going to bring an end to evil and all those enemies are no longer going to have any say and they're not going to have any play either. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be thrown in the lake of fire. So... There's like this, the first enthronement. Yes, everything is under Jesus, but there's still evil at play. It's not totally stopped yet. There's still a lot of evil at play. But when he comes back the second time, that's going to be done away with. The world to come is going to deal with the final, the final uh, retributive justice, if you will, to the enemies of God. And our author says exactly that. After he quotes Psalm 8, notice what he said. He, he explains it for us. I love how the author of Hebrews is a, he's a preacher. He's expositing the word of God. He just ex- read Psalm 8, and now he's got to explain it and exposit and explain it to us. He does this throughout this book. Here he goes. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, 
We do not see everything in subjection to him. We don't see it with our physical eyes. It is, but we don't see it. But we do see him for, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And that's the first time his name is mentioned in the book, by the way. He hasn't been called Jesus yet until right now, which is interesting. Remember, Jesus is his human name, right? right? Yeah. He was named Jesus when the angel told Joseph, call him Jesus, and Mary also. He wasn't called Jesus before that. So here it is, the incarnate Son of Man is now named Jesus in the book. He's, the author is, is uh, following that pattern. Chapter 1, he was the Son, he was God, he was Lord. Now he's still the Son, still God, still Lord, but he's Jesus. And you'll notice from now on, he's going to talk about Jesus, and he's going to talk about the Son almost interchangeably. Jesus, who's the one seated at the right hand, the Son of God, Jesus. We'll also call him Christ quite a bit. But it's interesting that the the name of Jesus doesn't come in the, isn't even mentioned until right now. In fact, it even says in our translations, namely mm. Jesus. Namely Jesus. Like, oh, here's his name, Jesus. We see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. That was his entire traverse, that was his entire life from conception all the way to death on the cross, to resurrection, to ascension. And now he's seated at the right hand, but we don't see all the enemies subjected yet. We, the, the enemies are not totally subjected. They're still, they have play. And that's his way of kind of reconciling it. We live in the already but not yet, is what the theologians call it. It's like already guaranteed... The enemies subjected are already guaranteed, but we don't see it yet. But we live in the truth of it now, and we live by faith in it now, of what it's going to be. So that's just uh, that's what that's what that is called is the already but not yet. Psalm one ten is the not yet until Psalm eight is the already. They're subjected now, but actually they're not. <laughs> The enemies are still running amok until he's going to come back and fix that later. All right. Get my notes back here. Verse 9. We see him for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. And then here's what makes it interesting this is what makes him a man more than anything because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus now crowned with glory and honor why was he crowned with glory and honor? Because. Now in chapter 1 it said he was crowned with glory and honor after he made purification for sins. That's all it said. Now it's getting a lot more detailed. How did he make purification for sins? How did that purification for sins happen? Right here. 
because as a man, the son of man, he suffered death. And it's a gift of the grace of God that he might taste death for everyone. That's, that's important. I'll get back to before everyone later. This is why he had to be made a man. Well, we'll get into that. He's going to get into that more coming up too. As a man, he's able to suffer. Specifically, what's the big human experience that God couldn't experience until he became a man? Death. Death. He became a man so that he could die. Ultimate suffering. He could suffer a lot of other things, like like I said earlier, just breathing and getting up in the morning and doing things that aren't all that pleasant, to death. He suffered the whole thing, but this is the primary one. He had to die, and the only way he could die was to become a man. And it was God's grace that he did that. That's You can... The author's not going to expound upon that right now. He just lays it out there, and just you can think about that and go, "Wow, that's it's amazing." But he's going to get to the next comparison with the angels in verses ten through sixteen. Go ahead. I was just thinking that phrase that he might taste death for everyone seems to be, I think, a, a unique phrase in in the New Testament for describing. Yeah, it is. His vicarious atonement. You know, Paul very, never very, he never uses it. Right? Never uses that terminology specifically. It's 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 fascinating. Yes, another evidence that it wasn't Paulie Paul who actually penned this. Even though what he's saying is very consistent with what Paul would say, it's a he's building upon Paul. <clears throat> Verse ten through fourteen now. There's another comparison with the angels, but he doesn't make the comparison, actually 10 through 16, until he gets to verse 16, the very end of it, he'll compare the angels, but he's leading up to this. And I like how he goes about it. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, what a Interesting way of saying it. It was fitting. It's like he's a distinguished British gentleman. It was fitting. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. It was fitting that he became a man, is what he's saying. It's fitting for this, and he gives a reason for it. It's not just that you might taste death for everyone. There's something else that's fitting about this. All things were created by him and through him. That's a fantastic phrase in, its, in and of itself. For whom and by whom. If you saw that in the Greek, you would go, wow, that's, that's cool. <laughs> For whom and by whom. And he's talking about God the Father here too. For whom and by whom all things exist. Of course, Paul says they also all things were created for Jesus, too, in Colossians chapter 1. So it's really for both the Father and the Son. But here it's emphasizing God created all these, all this for himself. But it was fitting in bringing many sons, 
to glory, plural, sons to glory, that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So there's more going on here. It's not just God, by his grace, providing someone who is going to taste death for everyone. He's got specific ones among those everyone that he's going to bring the glory called sons. It was fitting to bring many sons to glory by making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. Now actually the suffering in the Greek is plural. Through sufferings. Which means it's more than just the suffering of death that he just referred to. It's all the sufferings that that we all have as humans from beginning to end. He was made perfect through sufferings. He was made complete through sufferings. He experienced sufferings throughout this entire life. It wasn't just at the cross. It was from the moment of conception to the cross that there were sufferings that he experienced. And it was fitting that God made his son experience all this and become perfect. That kind of alludes to chapter 12. That just came up. Um, chapter, before I take your question, I'll just say this about chapter 12. Remember it says, uh, all fathers discipline their sons whom they love. Remember that phraseology? This is discipline of the son. That's what it is. It's a training. God loves his son and he disciplines him for us. Anyway, that's, that's coming attractions. Yes, Angie? Um, when it says bringing many sons to glory, would you please tell me that the Greek says sons and daughters to glory? Yes. There's your answer, yes. When he means sons, he means everything, sex-wise. I didn't, I didn't so. want to sit here left out. I know you're not. I know you're not. But sons is important for what he said. He's got a son. It's, there's something poetic going on here, too, so... One son, the firstborn son, brings other sons to glory. Yes, it includes male and female. Um, how am I doing on time? Okay. Because there's so much I could say here. It's like, what do I do? Um, the word salvation. It's interesting... I'm going to bring this up because he just said the founder of their salvation. That's the third time he said salvation in these in these word in this text. Um, it's interesting that he brought it up. He first brought it up at the end of chapter one. The very last verse is where it first shows up, talking about the angels. They're sent out to serve for those for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. And then he says, "Don't neglect this great salvation." And now he's talking about the one who has the author of this great salvation and. It's interesting that the author of Hebrews brought this up because he's assuming that we, his, his audience, has an idea what this means. He didn't define salvation, right? And this is where I believe he's building on Paul. If you want to know what salvation is, read Romans. 
I think he's definitely taking concepts from Romans and he's expounding upon them. Because Paul clearly says that salvation is what? What are we saved from? According to Romans chapter... The wrath of God. The wrath of God. I've got that in in your notes somewhere. Um, He's saved from the wrath of God. But the author of Hebrews is kind of hinting at that. That's what he was saying. Don't neglect this great salvation because there's retributive justice coming if you don't. That's the wrath of God. So he's building upon it there. And there's a positive side to salvation. Those who are saved are going to be crowned with glory and honor. With Jesus. They're going to be brought to glory, is what it says. The author of their salvation brings many sons to glory. So there's, there's a negative, avoid the justice, and there's the positive, experience the glory with the one who's crowned. I actually said that wrong. Jesus is the one crowned, we're not crowned. I, well, there's other texts that talk about we get crowns too, but then we take our crowns off and give them to the one with the big crown, right? Mm-hmm. So we kind of get crowned, but really it's all about him who's crowned because we're going to toss our crowns at his feet. But there's, there's, we're saved from the wrath of God, but we're also brought into this beautiful relationship with God where we're sons of God, which means we can call God Father, and Jesus is like our big brother. That's, that's what's going on here, and that's, that's actually what he's going to share next. He's going to quote two more pieces of scripture Another psalm, and he's going to quote from Isaiah to help make, help explain the many sons and daughters. This wasn't something that Paul made up. This isn't something that the author of Hebrews is making up. This is something that was spoken long ago by David himself in Psalm 22. He quotes from Psalm 22, and he says it, This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, Psalm 22, 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And then he quotes Isaiah 8. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God, the children God has given me. The I there would be Jesus. God has given me children. And I'm going to declare your name to my brothers. So there's this promise of, even in the Old Testament, there was this promise that God was going to gather a company of brothers around him. Sons, other sons. And he quotes from these two texts. And if you went back to those two texts and just looked at them, your initial take on them would be, I think he's just lifting these verses out of context. I don't see mm-hmm. what... Mm. What does that... And he's just making it sound good in his sermon here, and it's kind of cute. Well, actually, that's not the case. When you, when you actually see that, when you, when you look at it and go, what's he mean by this? It's a challenge to go back and look at what Psalm 22 actually says. <laughs> and Psalm 22 isn't... We've got to look at Psalm 22. Psalm 22. All right. He's quoting from verse 22. But if you read the first 21 verses of Psalm 22, you're going to get an idea of what's going on here. 
You're going to get an idea of the humanity of the Son of Man made a little lower than the angels suffering death. Because Psalm 22 is a perfect depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus written a thousand years before it happened. It starts like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Jesus crying on the cross, those exact words. And if you go and you read it, it's a complete description of what Jesus was suffering on that day. There's, there's words like this, but, verse 6, I am a worm, this is, I am a worm, the psalmist is saying of Jesus, and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. That's the cross, right? They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. That's exactly what happened on Calvary. Exactly. And David is writing about it a thousand years before it happened. That's the context. And after this, in verse 21, the one who's crying out, my God, my God, he says, save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. It just turns on a dime. It's like he's crying from the cross, save me. It says God rescued him. It doesn't tell you how. It doesn't say that he died and had to stay in the grave for three days before it happened. But between 21 and 22, he goes from crying out for help, forsaken on the cross, to I've got brothers now. I've got a bunch of brothers. And I'm going to share your name with my brothers. I have saved not just me. I have saved brothers. There's a company of brothers that came up from the grave with me. And he's celebrating it. That's what Psalm 22, 22 is talking about. And that's what the author of Hebrews is referring to when he quotes it. He's quoting to... After he suffered and tasted death, brothers are with him. And then he does the same thing with Isaiah 8. I don't want to take time to go into Isaiah 8, but it's a similar idea where God's judgment is coming. Actually, Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 is very messianic. Um, and it's written in the context of the Assyrian army is coming to wipe out destroy Israel and Isaiah is prophesying about this a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and prophesying about the son and his name shall be called Emmanuel and his wonderful counselor that that's all found in that context and what Isaiah says and what he's quoting here is Isaiah in the midst of this is saying is despite what I'm seeing this disaster that's happening to my nation I will trust in you and the sons you've given me will too. And what Isaiah meant by that was, I will trust in you, and the sons, my sons, will also trust in you. But the author of Hebrews is saying, messianically, it's referring to the one who suffered, crying out to God, I will trust in you, even on the cross, I will trust in you, and so will my, the sons you've given me. I've got a company of believers. I'm doing this for them. 
And that's what the author of Hebrews is essentially hinting at if you study the context. I'm just trying to get through that quick. There's a lot of, if you think through that, you're going to go, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. But that's what's going on. And then, back to Hebrews 2. I'll be fortunate to get through verse 16. I know. <laughs> but it's just too good. He makes some more comparisons with these children. What's special about these children and Jesus? These children share in flesh and blood. That's why he partook of the same things. You see, Jesus came to the earth with children in mind. He came, he had this view. I want, there's a, God had sons and daughters picked out before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1. They went astray, they became slaves of sin. But God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, decided we're going to go rescue them. And the way we got to do it, the fitting way to do it, is to have the Son become man, to share in their flesh and blood, to partake of the same things, up to and including death, so that he would have the sons, no longer slaves to sin, but with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in glory. That's what is going on here. And that's what he says in verses 14, 15, and 16. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, identified entirely with them, that through death he might, and there's two reasons he died, two. The first is he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's the sons and daughters. And Psalm 8 actually, well, Psalm 8 is referring more to the putting all things in subjection, the enemies of God being put under subjection. Psalm 110 is saying that too. So, the first reason all this happened was to destroy, what does it say? Destroy the devil. And this is the only time the devil's mentioned in Hebrews, but it's pretty important. Because we tend, just, we tend to, uh, I think this is the part of the gospel we tend to forget. And the author of Hebrews doesn't want us to forget it. When we think of the gospel, usually we think of What's the gospel? Jesus died for my sins. Yeah. And? Did he just die for your sins? What about your brothers and sisters? Oh, yeah, he died for their sins too. But he died for my sins. That's nice. That's more like a, a secondary benefit of what he really came to do. What he really came to do was to destroy the devil, to do, destroy death, to destroy sin, all sin, all death, all enemies, 
First and foremost, he came to eradicate evil, which we'll, we'll see that on the judgment day. But that was the first and foremost reason God did this. He came to destroy his enemies, to render them powerless, to throw them in the pit of hell, his eternal judgment. And in so doing, he rescues the children. And it's, it's plural. It's not just you. It's the, son, the brothers and sons you're a part of. It's, it's a group. It's a group of those that he saved. And what the author of Hebrews is emphasizing or making a point of is don't just think of it as a personal thing. First of all, think of it as there's a, there's a family of believers that are being saved. But even more importantly, he's actually come to completely eradicate evil, completely destroy evil. And he's going to make that point explicit later. He's going to, it's going to take him chapter by chapter by chapter to get to that point. But in chapter 9, verse 26, he's going to say, in my opinion, the most theologically important verse in the book. Of why it's, it's basically... This verse about destroying the devil is pointing to that verse. It's a verse that most people... I'm going to have to read it since I brought it up. It's in the notes, by the way. But when I, as I've studied Hebrews for decades now, this is not anyone's favorite verse, but it's the most important verse. Because this is what motivated God and Jesus to do what they did. Hebrews 9, 26b. B, see, not even a full verse, it's half the verse. But now, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, right now, he has appeared in the past at the end of the ages, future. So it's covering all eternity. This is the whole point. He appeared. End of the ages. Now. Why did he do it? Once for all to put away sin. To destroy sin. To put an end to sin. By the sacrifice of himself. He came to do that. Okay. I gotta get back to the text because it's time to stop. Verse 16. Here's the final comparison with the angels. For he did not come, it says help to help the angels, but to help the seed of Abraham. The word help there is a weak translation. It shouldn't be help, it should be grab hold of. And rip out, rescue by force, like the angels did to Lot. He didn't come to save and rescue angels. Those angels who disobey are going to go to hell. They don't get a chance. He came to save the seed of Abraham. Seed of Abraham. And I don't have time to explain what the seed of Abraham is, but Romans tells us what the seed of Abraham is. You can look that up on your own. The seed of Abraham are those who are not physical descendants, there are those who are of the faith of Abraham. Everyone who has the faith of Abraham is a seed of Abraham. 
And God sent his son, the sacrifice of his son, to rescue the seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham are what he came to rescue. The ones who have the faith of Abraham. Remember what it said, he tasted death for everyone, but he only rescues the seed of Abraham. The death of Christ is for everyone to look upon and behold. The gospel goes to everyone, but only those who believe are rescued. The seed of Abraham. And he also hasn't used the we or the us yet. He hasn't identified us with the seed of Abraham. That's next week. Well, I have to bring it to an end here. I'm gonna, there's still a couple verses to go, but they'll fit nicely into next week because they transition into chapter 3 very nicely. So we'll do that. So let me... Pray and call our name. Lord, we thank you for this great salvation that we do not want to neglect because it's just so amazing that you would become a man and taste death to rescue those who have faith in him, like Abraham did. God, please help us to consider this to be encouraged by this, to build our faith in these truths and to confidently walk forward knowing, knowing that this Christ is our brother and you are our father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.